is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Jabot. The Ministry of Defence considers military deployment to Libya. Concerns are raised over the forthcoming Defence Review, a service to mark 70 years since the first atomic bomb was dropped over Hiroshima. Everything was green and then suddenly everything went brown. And there was only the odd tree stood up where it had all been burnt. British troops could be sent to Libya as part of an international stabilisation force. The Ministry of Defence says the UK is developing plans to provide support if a unified government can be formed there. A tall order, considering there are two rival governments, one in Tripoli and another in Tobruk. Well, Christopher Lee is with us, as always. So too is Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Rogers, first, what level of truth between the two sides in Libya has to be agreed? It has to be pretty rigid and also genuine. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to do because the sides are so split within themselves. If you can get some degree of stability in which there are essentially reasonably long-lasting ceasefires and both of the governments and some of the key factions agree to some sort of stabilisation force, then there is a prospect of making progress. But I think there are very considerable concerns about whether it's actually possible in the present circumstances. So what, what are the big problems to overcome? Well, there are a number. I mean, there's so many divisions within Libya. Uh, there are broadly probably three major areas. Uh, the third, which is the least significant in terms of numbers, but probably the most significant in political terms, is the more radical Islamist groups, particularly the ones that are allied to Islamic State. Uh, and they are the ones who are absolutely intent on not wanting to see uh, a move towards a truce and therefore any kind of stabilisation force coming in. And it depends very much on the combination of how powerful they are, but also whether the two main, what you might call quasi-governments, can actually even agree. Uh, there are very considerable efforts being made at present, but it's going to be very difficult. Christopher, can you tell us a bit more about these two quasi-governments? Well, basically you've got Tobruk and Tripoli. And in one, uh, Tripoli, you've got, for example, Libya Dawn. And they see themselves as the rightful government. But in Tobruk, unfortunately, they see themselves as the rightful government. And then you have, and this is the most important part of it, is that you find that their different factions have got the biggest fear. Because in the province of Tripoli, this much wider area, this is when you've got the new names for the groups, which in fact are IS. Now, as Paul said, is the smaller bits and pieces within those two big factions. It's like having militant groups in your own camp. And every indication at the moment is that because, of the, because they want to pay off against each other, and some of the smaller groups don't like some of the smaller groups in the other side, it is almost impossible to guess at the moment where the official government, which is recognised in, internationally, when you went to Tobruk to talk to them, they say, oh, yes, we'll agree this. You won't get, any, you won't get anywhere. Professor Paul Rogers, do, do you think this international stabilisation force, then, is pie in the sky? 
I think it's very difficult to envisage working at present. Uh, to put together a force like that and to make it work is going to be very tricky. Now, for many years, there have been uh, attempts to get some sort of UN emergency peace service, which would be very well equipped, very well trained forces, very multinational, who would actually have the capability to do this sort of thing if local circumstances allow. But we don't have that, and so everything is, to some extent, ad hoc. And I think one, one has to be candid. This is going to be incredibly difficult uh, to do. It doesn't mean one shouldn't try and shouldn't plan for it. But the prospects of actually succeeding in the next six to 12 months, frankly, I think are rather remote. You walk down Whitehall and you start saying to people, well, you know, where, where are we getting into this and what, what, are, what are the plans for it? And you're swiftly taken back to the Anglo-French intervention in Libya in the first place and the fear of the Brits that the French were taking the lead in this, that Sarkozy was taking the lead in this. And in fact, so much so that every time there was a successful bombing, the Libyans used to say, ah, there goes a Sarkozy. Mm. Now, there's the second part of it, which is the most important part of it, and that is that you don't just go into a country. You have to be invited into the country to give assistance. Indeed. So who has the power... To do the inviting. Not only to do in the inviting, but to sustain that invitation. OK, let, let's just suppose uh, these plans are, are being worked on quite fastidiously right now. Paul, uh, what size of protection force would be needed? Well, if you go right, the, the nearest guess we have, if you go right back to what was suggested to Afghanistan uh, three or four months after 9-11, some of the really good UN people were saying you needed 30,000. So you're talking about a substantial force from the beginning. Uh, that would have had to be composed of a number of states, and if at all possible, states with very large Muslim populations. Uh, so again, I'm afraid it's a tall ask, but you're so certainly talking about something substantial, uh, tens of thousands. This isn't a small stabilisation force of, say, 5,000. And, and what you will get, and the, or they hope to get, is not just France and the United Kingdom doing this. Uh, they hope to bring in people as far away for example, as the Gulf Cooperation Council, which in the original idea of, of how, how to stabilise Libya, the Gulf countries were very, very keen that there ought to be... Uh, mm. happened. The other thing to remember, it's not putting 30,000 boots on the ground. It is you've got to have the, um, the combat air control, uh, uh, patrols, therefore you've got to have air forces involved. You've got to have navy for off offshore mm. uh, evacuation, bombardment uh, and support and logistics. This is a bigger operation than Afghanistan ever was because you've got to have an active naval side of it as well. Just, just briefly, Professor Paul Rogers, I mean, you talk about how, how highly unlikely it seems at the moment that there will be this kind of international stabilisation force, but can the international community afford not to get involved in this way? I can't afford not to, but I think getting involved in this way at this stage uh, would probably not work and make actually, may actually make matters worse. Everything does need to be done to try and help the UN people who are trying with great difficulty to bring the key sides together. But in a sense, Libya has now become part of a much wider problem, which is IS or ISIS or Islamic State, call, call it what you want, because that is now very much involved in this. So in some ways, to make matters worse, Libya now fits in to a much wider regional conflict. All right, gentlemen. 
Gentlemen, stay with us. There have been calls for the government to rethink how this year's Strategic Defence and Security Review is carried out. The Conservative-supporting think tank, the Bow Group, wants an extended review, expressing concern that this year's SDSR might not look closely enough at the needs and objectives of the military. Well, joining us now is Harry Mallins, who wrote the report for the Bow Group. Harry, good to speak to you today. What are your main concerns? Well, really that the uh, review, um, which is due to be published in the autumn, will be a, a dusted-off version of the previous SDSR, uh, which I think was widely criticised for being financially driven and, in some sense, a-strategic. I- I'm slightly puzzled that you think this, because ever since the last SDSR, there has been so much cr- criticism of what people have said was that it was financially driven and it wasn't strategic enough. You'd think that was the last thing that would happen this time around. Right. Well, I, I suppose the issue is um, that firstly the, the, the time scale is, is fairly constrained uh, this time round and the process seems to be conducted in the same way as the, the last time round. In fact, David Cameron has talked about a review that's in the same vein as the last one. Um, at Roland Berger, where I'm a, a consultant, we conducted a series of interviews last year with key people in industry and the civil service. Mm. And the point came across very strongly that when the SDSR was carried out according to this timescale in 2010, the process really was too short. Um, you know, it, the process lasted five to six months. Many of the key people were away for their summer holidays during key periods. Uh, mm. And the real work was done in, in just six weeks. And if you contrast that with the 1997-1998 SDR, which took 14 months to produce and was regarded as a fairly strong review, uh, I think you can see the concern. How long do you think would be long enough? Difficult difficult to say what's long enough. Um, Probably somewhere in between the two. Um, I think the fact that this is being conducted over the summer and... and, um, the likelihood is that key people will be away and uh, it'll sort of become a, a, a rushed out uh, glossy PR document uh, means that it is too short but really you need enough time to engage uh, all of the relevant stakeholders including industry, academia, allies, MPs, various others as well as the time to conduct the, uh, the detailed analysis of, of threats and I think um, somewhere over six months is, is much more appropriate perhaps more like um, ten months would be the relevant time. Christopher Lee. The Foreign Office and the Defence Ministry have been looking at this review and working on it actively since last October. So it's not going to be just a flash-in-the-pan thing. most important thing to remember is when the last uh, review appeared five years ago, the world was a heck of a different place as far as the British are concerned. Um, Afghanistan, more active, less active, in, in certain parts of the world. Things have changed. Also, the threat has measurably changed. And therefore, what is happening is this. Over in the Foreign Office, there is a group of 14 people who are settling down or have settled down and have produced the basics of any proper defence review, and that is, what does this and a future government want Britain to be able to do in the, over the next 25 years? Mm. And the defence part of the review is then based on the fact that is the Defence Ministry, therefore, has to guarantee the policy of this government and any government that follows it, because it, you, you can't do short-term planning mm. from the onwards. Harry, in your report, you're saying the government must be absolutely clear on the national objectives. Mm. Uh, do, you, do you fear that they're not? Well, I think that was the 
criticism last time round, and it, it's the risk this time round. I think uh, it needs uh, there needs to be a very clear link between any sort of national security strategy that's produced uh, and what's recommended in the uh, Strategic Defence and Security Review. There needs to be a very clear link between the two, which shows how the Defence Review is meeting or is designed to meet national Professor Paul Rogers, um, do you f share the fears that this next defence review will be a glossy PR exercise? Uh, I think there is a fear. One hopes that the sort of work the Foreign Office is doing really is some new thinking. But unless we're addressing some of the really big core drivers of conflict we're going to face, this almost worldwide problem of developing marginalisation, the greater risk of revolts from the margins, and of course the really big one, the sort of the, uh, the gorilla in the room of climate disruption, unless those come in as well, then I'm not at all sure that this defence review will be anything more than a missed opportunity. And those would be my concerns. Sort of, I know are much wider than normal, but I think that is what you would want from a review of this nature. That, that gorilla in the room that you mentioned, um, is that the thing really you think that might be missed off the defence review? Is that the biggest threat that's not been thought out yet? I think it's probably the biggest threat for all of us. Uh, I mean, I think the whole business of global marginalisation, you're seeing what's happened across the Middle East, is serious. But climate disruption is just going to make it much worse. And it, we're just not really factoring how dangerous the world could become unless much stronger action is taken in the next 10 years. There's a meeting in, uh, in Paris in yeah. the beginning of December, which is really a loose term. It's about climate change. And you're already seeing uh, the basis of this meeting, and that is big countries, and small, but big countries mainly, have got to announce at that meeting what they're doing about climate change. The one element that's missing, and that is an understanding of the security aspect of when climate change is not necessarily ignored, but people can't mm. handle it. Uh, Harry Mallins, um, you are, as we said at the beginning, a, a Conservative-supporting think tank, and, of course, we have the first Conservative government for 18 years presiding over this defence review. Are they listening to what you're saying? Well, I, I, think, they, uh, I think they're listening um, to, to a degree. They've got a, a large number of groups saying very many things um, that they have to listen to. I, I think the, the point about the Conservatives is that they've always been the party that's closest to defence, certainly seen that way, and the party that's most trusted when it comes to uh, defence. I'm uh, sure other parties will take issue with that, but carry on. Well, I mean, if you look at the, the polls, for example, I think the Ipsos Story poll of uh, this year, in April, um, showed a, a strong conservative of about 11% on, uh, on that point. Um, but I think um, they, they, do, they do listen uh, to... Uh, the various stakeholder groups, uh, but there is always the point that the Conservatives were elected to address the deficit, uh, and this has to inform things. So clearly, there are mm. financial constraints, for example, um, that mean that you know defence is never going to get a, a blank check, mm. um, and you can't do you can't do everything um, that you might like to do uh, with the defence review. But I think I think right. they they are listening to the point that the process needs to be done properly and in, order to, in order to get the best results with the means that we have. All right, Harry Mallins there, we'll leave it. Thank you very much. Still to come, 70 years on, the US bombing of Hiroshima remembered. To destroy whole the city, that means a hundred bombs, but we didn't see hundred airplanes.
Before all of that, let's have a look around at what else is going on this week. Christopher, um, NATO's defence capability building deal with regard to Iraq. What is that exactly? Well, it's basically what you can... It is twofold. What you can actually do as NATO countries to provide the government that NATO generally supports or the formal government of Iraq a defence against factions, including uh, IS, security operations, etc. That's one part of it. And what should we be willing to sort of make, what contributions... Is this deal make? done? Uh, this deal is very, very much done. Um, but all, all, when deals are done, you then have to see who, A, ratifies them, because they're going to be ratified in budgets. Um, but secondly, you've got to see who continues to support them. And I suspect uh, out of 28 countries, you've probably got five or six active countries involved in this, and that's actually quite a lot. Professor Paul Rogers, we were talking last week about the death of the leader and founder of the Taliban. Uh, developments there? Nothing really yet. I mean, what is now clear is that, in fact, uh, Mullah Omar probably died two years ago. And really, it's come out late in the day. And I think, in a sense, the replacement uh, positions have more or less been filled. There are some uncertainties about the state of the Taliban. There are a lot of divisions within it. But at the same time, it still makes a great deal of progress in many parts of Afghanistan, particularly in the north and east. And I think that's probably what is worrying the Afghan Ghani government the most, that this is moving out from the more traditional Pashtun areas of the south and southeast. And Christopher, uh, in what state is the peace process at the moment in Afghanistan? Uh, more or less there. You know, is it possible uh, with a new leadership to have the same attitudes as they might have had earlier? And one of the reasons for this is because, as in any politics, but especially Afghan politics in the region, uh, somebody, the new leadership's got to take a stance. It might have said earlier that it was a very good idea to have these talks. Now it might say no. The thing to watch, though, more importantly at the moment, is... As ever, part of the solution to what goes on in the next 10 years in Afghanistan is actually in Pakistan. And there are lots of factions now trying to get into their positions of actually trying to influence Afghanistan. And one of them, a general, was actually uh, murdered uh, just this past week. BAE Systems has awarded the first manufacturing contracts for the Type 26 Global Combat Ship. The anti-submarine warfare ship will replace the Type 23 frigate, which is coming to the end of her life. The first three should come into service in the early 2020s. Charlotte Cross reports. It's still at the design stage, but the Royal Navy's next generation of warship, the Type 26 Global Combat Ship, is a step closer to becoming reality. BAE Systems has awarded the first eight manufacturing contracts worth £370 million to a group of suppliers. They'll now start building parts, including navigation systems, weapon systems and essential in anti-submarine warfare, the latest noise reduction technology designed by GE Marine. Here's Nick Smith from the company. For, for two reasons, one to be quiet so that uh, things can't hear the ship and the other thing for to be quiet so when the ship's listening it's not getting interference from its other systems, just like the Type 23, so it's building on that. The Type 26 will replace the ageing Type 23, a specialist in anti-submarine warfare, but the new ship will be more flexible, able to take on a variety of tasks from supporting land-based operations to disaster relief. That's mainly down to a new adaptable mission bay, as programme director Jeff Searle explains. There's a number of key features of the Type 26 design which make it flexible both for the roles it will undertake and for upgrade and flexibility through life. One of the most uh, prominent is the new mission bay, which is a, a large space just forward of the hangar 
which is capable of taking a wide range of payloads through the life of the ship. So it could take unmanned air vehicles or unmanned sub- underwater vehicles. It could take um, standard ISO containers for disaster relief stores or field hospitals, can transport vehicles for, for land forces. So, so that mission bay enables the ship to quickly and rapidly re-roll to undertake whatever task the government requires. The Type 26 will contain state-of-the-art technology, which is also going into the design phase. Digital simulation is used to link up engineers working across five different sites. Mark Villiers is visualisation manager with Naval Ships. And we can real-time collaborate on the same view of the ship. And so we'll have perhaps engineers in Scotsland driving the session, navigating their way around the different compartments and inspecting them for all aspects of the design maturity, getting key decisions made far quicker than we would have done historically. The first three ships should be in the water by 2019, ready for testing. There's now real momentum behind a ship which will serve the Royal Navy well into 2060. Charlotte Cross for BFBS London. Well, Christopher Lee and Professor Paul Rogers are still with us. Uh, Christopher, are you excited about the Type 26 global combat ship? I like the idea of the Type 26. I mean, having years ago sort of admired the Type 21 even, the Amazon class, uh, yeah, I think they're going to be good. But I tell you what they are. They're the Mondeos, the Ford Mondeos of, of <laughs> Not of, very of complimentary, is it? What's wrong with the Ford Mondeo? Uh, well, we, um, what's Mondeo man? That's my, the question. I tell you, my Uncle Arthur has been driving a Ford Mondeo now for about sort of 15 years. Now, mm. if any, these ships are going to last 20 years at the very, very <laughs> least. So Arthur and, and, and his Mondeo... I, so no, that's no, what you mean. There's that, a serious part the of this. Yeah. There's a serious part of this. You want a ship that is capable of doing almost anything except being the big destroyer. These are frigates, not destroyers, not like the, the, the Type 45. These are the workhorses. These are the things you can say, right, go and escort, a, go and escort a, an aircraft carrier or, or go and look after, um, let's say, an environmental disaster in the West Indies. I hope they get the 13 they want. I suspect they won't. If they're lucky, they get eight. Seventy years ago today, an American B-29 bomber, the Enola Gay, dropped a nuclear bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. An estimated 80,000 people were killed by the blast, and by the end of 1945, injury and radiation meant thousands more had died. At the time, the US President Harry S. Truman said the atomic bomb heralded the harnessing of the basic power of the universe. Three days later, the United States launched a second, bigger bomb on Nagasaki. A memorial service has been held in Japan to mark the 70th anniversary of the world's first nuclear attack. Well, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe hopes the anniversaries will stimulate new moves to scrap such weapons of mass destruction. Seventy years on, I re-emphasize the necessity of world peace and we have to continue our effort to achieve the world without nuclear weapon. Well, Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford is still with us. Um, Paul... Has what happened seven decades ago made the world a safer place or more dangerous? 
I think in the early decades it made the world a much more dangerous place. Uh, two periods, the early 1960s and especially the early 1980s, were very, very dangerous, far more so than I think we recognised at the time. If you look back over the whole period, it's always said that nuclear weapons kept the peace, but in fact some very bitter and very costly proxy wars were fought under the nuclear umbrella. And in some ways people can argue, I think quite rightly, that in a sense nuclear weapons have postponed the peace. However, I think one crucial thing is that the, uh, 30 years ago we were almost looking over an abyss into an appalling apocalypse almost. We're not in that position now but I think in a sense we're still on a kind of slippery slope. Um, there are what, nine nuclear powers at present if you include the tiny number of nuclear weapons that North Korea has. None of those is planning in any way to really downgrade its nuclear capability further. There have been very big decreases since the end of the Cold War uh, but there isn't any real desire to take it further. Mm. Uh, and this is in spite of the fact that, what, 186 out of the world's 195 countries do not have nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, the world is safer, but we're not out of the woods. Yes, but, um, Christopher, what if the likes of so-called Islamic State get their hands on a dirty bomb? Well, you're not going to lob a, um, a medium-range missile with a nuclear warhead into where, because you don't know where, into the Islamic State. You're not going to be able to fight an, an Islamic State with that. And the so-called duty bo uh, dirty bomb is, is a different piece of chemistry, a different piece of, of weapons engineering. I think what's fascinating about it is that uh, a few years ago, the then Defence Secretary was Michael Heseltine, the Conservative uh, uh, Secretary of State was Michael Heseltine. And I remember him saying to me, if we did not have nuclear weapons, we wouldn't buy one. We wouldn't go out and buy one. And that is, the, to some extent, the debate in this country. Um, there is, in the next defence review, in the strategic part of the defence review, there's going to be a shortened version of an essay that was started some years ago by a man called Michael Quinlan, mm. which argues the case for having, for example, a nuclear deterrent. And it comes up with the first question, whom are you trying to deter? And that is the, that was the, that's the huge element of discussion about nuclear weapons for each separate country. But so far, no one's giving them up. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers, given we are looking at events 70 years ago, what would have happened had Japan not surrendered? If it hadn't surrendered, the United States had a plan B, which was to produce two more nuclear weapons per month and to destroy two cities a month until the end of the year. They had plans for ten more attacks overall. The assumption was that would eventually work. There was actually an extraordinary backup plan if the entire Manhattan Project had failed. The United States Army was all set to mass-reduce chemical weapons for counter-city attacks. That, of course, never happened. But the United States had taken the decision that Japan would be forced into surrender using nuclear weapons. Fortunately, it surrendered after the use of just two. What is fascinating is that when the United States bombed Japan, it had no real idea of the power of destruction that it had. And in fact, the, nuclear, the effects of nuclear weapons was not really established in the United States until about 1970. And that was the interesting thing. They didn't know what they were un un unloading. This is Zitrap on BFBS.
Well, the last surviving pilot of the Second World War Dam Busters bombing operation died this week. Les Monroe passed away in his native New Zealand at the age of 96. Um, Christopher, how has the legend of the Dam Busters been kept alive? Oh, I think... Uh, do you know, have you ever heard the Dam Busters march? I think it was Eric Coates who... And it's always being played on... Uh, going to do think, it for us now? Uh, no, I'm not <laughs> going to do it for you. I thought you might. But, but no, I, I tell you, it's, it's perfectly true. Um, and I know Paul will agree with this. On Radio 4, it's always been played on things like uh, Desert Island Discs and le- These You Have Loathed and things like that. Mm. It is the most recognisable piece of music apart from the Archer's signature tune. <laughs> there you have part of the legend yes. uh, and, and also the cinema part of it with, with the great film. But you have one other thing. Mm. Any dad who has stood on the seashore and flicked a stone across the sea to show his son, grandson, how, how smart he is, and it bounces across. Barnes Wallace took me to a lake once. He was the guy that invented it and said, watch this. This is you how met, it started. Who haven't you met? What? Who haven't you met? He was actually... You do, see, you do know them all, don't you? He was going, or, or are you just name-dropping? No, he was going out with my great-aunt Betts actually at the time. <laughs> you are joking, seriously. I'm not joking. So what yes, did you say? It, Sorry, we, I cut you off in your we, prime there. No, we lived at Effingham <laughs> at the time, uh, which is another place you have to say very carefully. Um, but the point is, there was this magic about the... The, the, the flying, the, the skimming of the stone on the on the bomb, which had to ex- which had to actually follow the aeroplane. Otherwise, when it exploded, it would blow the aeroplane out of, out of the water. The other thing, of course, I was talking to somebody today, and I said to him, "What about the dam busters?" And he looked at me completely blankly. I think they need another film, another sig tune, uh, perhaps who, to keep who, the legend going. Paul Rogers, who who would you put in the lead role if if there was another film then? Oh gosh, I re- I, that, that's really got me off. Uh, I mean, they could make a very interesting film. I mean, uh, we live quite near the Derwent Valley, which of course is where mm. they train. Done some skimming there, have you? Uh, I've never done skimming there, no, but I, I do take Christopher's point, yes. Okay, well, there we must leave it. Um, it's all we have time off for. My thanks to Professor Paul Rogers, of course, to you, Christopher Lee. Do keep your comments coming on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Don't forget, you can download the programme as a podcast. Search for BFBS SITREP. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening, but from me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. News. News. Sport. Sport. And music Music. for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.